Hello and welcome to another episode of The Gaming Moguls, the only gaming podcast where a game released in 2007 is the new hotness. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jake Kloffenstein. Jake, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. We're so formal. We're misters. I know. That's because we are in a emeritus position of having fulfilled our duties this week. Wow. So we realized that uh, we probably shouldn't promise things. And we no. finally did something <laughs> 10 episodes late, but we did it. So, haha, we did it. Finally. And uh feels good and it was uh, worth the wait. And we will get to that later. However, before we dive into what we played this week, I do have a bone to pick. And this is a little bit with you. And this is a little bit with what? Fantasy what? Flight Games. Mostly with Fantasy oh. Flight Games. <laughs> so we play every Wednesday. You didn't Wednesday. tell me that in the pre-roll, Jake. Oh, I know. That's because it's fun. I got to pick the bone live. All right. Fantasy Flight rip. Games changed their hours from closing at midnights on Wednesday to closing at 11 p.m. And this doesn't seem like a big deal for a lot of people, but this game group has been going every Wednesday till midnight since like five or six years, probably even more than that. And we've just grown really accustomed to that. And so we can play two medium or medium long games, but now we kind of can't. We have to play one medium one and one shortish one and maybe one super short one. And last night we had planned to play Agricola, which we'll talk in a bit about. And we had also planned to play Imperial 2030. And Agricola was fast. It was only three hours with Teach and set up and everything. It was everything. It was great for a five player game. So not bad, but there was no chance we'd be able to fit in Imperial in two hours. And so I just got so bummed because I was so jazzed to play it. And I'd read the rules really carefully and I figured out the Teach looked at the map, did everything, and it was all jazz to play it. And regrettably, we didn't get to. And it would have been perfect for the group because it was five players. And I think more players makes that game better. This upsets me a lot, too. I, it really does limit where nights we used to be able to play two large games, no problem, and have room for dinner and maybe even a filler down to the point where it's one large game and a collection of fillers. And there's just no way around that. Well, I think our group needs to get a little bit better about setting up games. Maybe we just should have made the executive decision earlier to set up Agricola so we could save 15 minutes. Yeah, because we were so close and I was pushing the game of Agricola pretty fast. Sorry to the people I played with. I kept on doing things like feeding my people before I'd go do something else, even if it technically wasn't my turn, just to get it done with so I could move on. And I understand the decision why they went with that. I mean, it's not like people were ordering large dinners and multiple beers at 1130 p.m. But there really is not another space in the uh, Twin Cities metro area that allows you to play late night on a weeknight. And Wednesday night's the big board game night there. There's a lot of people there on Wednesday, and it's really unfortunate. It changes the outlook for our group and what we can play. I I think you and I and Jake need to put our heads together and see if there's a way that we can try to be the change we want in the world and influence them to reconsider their closing times on Wednesday night. Hopefully. Yeah, even if it goes like ticketed, I'd happily spend some money. But Anywho, that's enough of that. Why don't we talk about the games we played this week? Absolutely. We got to play some cool games this week, Mark. You know, for starters, uh, again, knowing to the fact that we were getting kicked out an hour earlier than we were used to, uh, we ended up playing a couple filler games. And this is one that I've been pushing you for a while to play on. And we finally got a chance to play what, Jake? Troll by Games and Koji Kimura. Troll is a really fun little game where you're trying to get in and steal gold and jewels from a troll. And you're doing this by putting out numbered chits and you're trying to put out a number of them that is smaller than the troll value. And if you're part of the group that causes you to bust, you lose money. Everybody less than that gets away with treasure and earns money. And everybody after that just runs away clean and gets nothing. 
Uh, it's a neat mix of both push your luck strategy as well as some social gaming and lots of things. It And it plays all in about 15 minutes. Super fun time, Jake. What'd you think? I liked it. I've realized that some games I can rank really granularly and just say, hey, I like this game more than this one and I like that one more than this one. But when it comes to a lot of the Oink games, I kind of think it's more helpful for me to kind of arrange which ones I like into different tiers. And so I would put Troll as a higher tier Oink game. Maybe not the highest T, but maybe like if it was A, B, C, D, I'd put it at a B or B plus, maybe A minus that kind of area Yep, where it's definitely a good one. It was really interesting. You're right. It didn't have a lot of rules into it, but the decisions that you made were fun and it was exactly what you wanted it to be for a kind of one A, one B style game using the mogul scale. Yeah, 100 percent. And there are definitely some strategies that um, and some. I would call them uh, social engineering strategies that unveil themselves after you've played a couple of rounds. Completely, which is what I love most about these joint games is they kind of open up with repeated plays, especially with that uh, startups game. I remember playing it the first time and being like, oh, that's not that's cool, but whatever. But as you keep on playing with the same group, the meta opens up and kind of people really start playing each other quickly, which is really fun, especially in those kind of games. Unfortunately, Troll not available in the U.S. I personally got my copy from, uh, I think, either Gumroad or I ordered it from France when I ordered my copy of Oink's Modern I think you ordered it from uh, France, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, I think that's correct. So anyway, Troll by Oink Games. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. I'm so happy I got to play it. We also, because of the same night. Hey, wait, Jake, 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 Jake. Who won, Jake? Oh, you won. You won by a lot. You won so well. (laughs) Uh, I just had to make sure that came out. Okay. Yes. So anyway, of course. <laughs> speaking of winning, I did not win this next one. Yeah. So because of uh, the time constraints, we were sitting down with about two hours and didn't have enough time for a game of Imperial 2030, but we did have enough time to play a very fast game of Crusaders that will be done and a game of Troll. So we also played another game of Crusaders. This is by Seth Jaffe and TMG Games. I would give this game a 2B on the mogul scale just to get it out of the way real quick. And we don't really have anything more interesting to talk about. But I've recently won a Board Game Geek giveaway, which I think I talked about in the last episode. And I won a copy of Crusaders that will be done, even though I already own one. Came with two other games as well at the Gates of Loyang and Gold West. So I said, whoever beats me at Crusaders that will be done will win a copy. And our good friend John won it. So congrats, John. You beat me by a lot. You did really well. And now he has a copy of Crusaders that will be done whenever they end up sending it to me. Yeah, for some reason, I forgot when you flip your little man Kala tiles over that you can do both of them, not either or. And uh, that may have impacted my strategy. I also I have a bit of a new take on Crusaders after last night. Oh, yeah. What's that? I actually realize it's a different type of game than I thought it was. Oh, how so? It's actually a race game. And I didn't realize that until last night. Yeah, because when we played, we played the rules wrong where the crusading didn't get you victory points. And I don't know how I missed that. But we played I think we played once or twice like that with you. That ended up happening that is the game's a little longer, so you're able to set up to the the longer strats. But with this, you really have to make sure that you can get everything in by the amount of time before the victory point shits run out. And the two turns I spent going up into the upper left corner or whatever that, you know, up in Ireland or whatever that was, honestly, probably cost me the game because just that two turns of tempo that I spent up there not earning victory points and building a building really put me so far behind everybody else that once the, uh, well, let's call it the rusting Saracens, maybe (laughs) I fell behind the Saracen rush and the, the points on some of the Crusades just got away from me, whereas I'd have eight points to go on a crusade. 
And right before it came to me, somebody jack it up to nine. And it just there was no way to build it up to that in time. Right. And so I think that the way to do this, and this is probably too uh, specific for the podcast, but let's say um, I think you have to build your castle to start in one of the starting locations. And then you have two nights and you can have one go east and one go west. I think that's yeah. the way you have to do it um, yep. where you can just do both. But yeah, I agree. It's 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 a good little game, though, for what it is. I really like it. I really enjoy it. It's overproduced to heck, but I'm a big fan. I've played it with a lot of people, whether they be intro gamers or regular gamers, and I've gotten nothing but pretty good feedback. Crusaders, that will be done. Yeah, it's a fun game. I also got a chance to play one that you were pushing very hard on playing last Wednesday I was. night. I was. And, um, you know, I remember hearing good things about it, but I couldn't remember specifically what I had heard about them. But eh, hey, I'm willing to give just about anything a whirl. And you pulled out Clans of Caledonia designed by Juma El Juju. I remembered pretty quickly what they compared it to, that it was compared positively to both uh, Gaia Project and Terra Mystica. Why don't you give a little bit of intro on what Clans of Caledonia is about, Jake? Right. So in Clans of Caledonia, you're different Scottish Highland clans who are during a part of uh, Scottish history where there's a lot of newfound exporting. It's like a it's like they're switched from agrarian culture to more of an industrialized culture. And so what you're doing is you are laying down different production facilities and different farms and different uh, things along those lines in a hexagon style location to try to get the most money. And then that results in the most victory points. It's very similar to games like Gaia Project, which I'm a huge fan of, and Terra Mystica, which I'm a fan of as well, but I haven't played as much as I've played Gaia. And it's fun. I'm, I'm excited to hear what you think of it, because you've played Gaia once with us, I believe. Correct. Yep. And you've played Terra Mystica uh, a few times, but that was before we became game friends. Yeah. I have a strange background and strange relationship with Gaia Project and Terra Mystica. I think they're both fantastic games and I enjoy playing with them. And for some reason, just the rules will not stay in my brain. And I don't know why that is, because there are lots of games that I play that are equally complex or or more or more so and that I have no problem with whatsoever. So I, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just that I don't play them often enough. But I found that I actually like Clans of Caledonia quite a bit. It hit a lot of the same notes. Yet it was in kind of a more palatable package, maybe, shall we say. It played in a pretty reasonably short amount of time. And I uh, was able to yeah, pick up and run I think our game was over in like quickly. an hour 20-ish? Yeah, it was quick. And it, no, it was a two-player game. Teach. And excluding, excluding Teach. So it is longer than what it says on the box. But I think there was some, usually the first game that we play tr- stretches about half an hour because we ordered food at Fantasy Flight during that amount of time. So I, I think it's well within the what, what they said, but I think it's a great game, too. I'm a huge fan of Gaia Project, but we've had some gamers in our game group who are a little newer, not as experienced with games, be taught Gaia Project, and they just weren't really in the game. They were still wrestling with the rules even towards the end of the game. And I don't think Gaia Project's the most complicated game in the world, but just notching that down and taking 20% of that complication off and making it a little more streamlined helps people get in the game a little quicker. It'll be interesting to see with repeated play if I'm ever with a table of experienced people and we all play um, Clans of Caledonia. If any of them will say, well, that was fun, but I wish we would have played Gaia Project. Sure. I think that'll be the main downside. But I don't know if I see that happening They're They're different enough, in my honest opinion, to keep both of them for both the length and just kind of the gameplay aspect. Yeah, I completely agree. I think they bring different things to the table for having a somewhat similar mechanism and theme. I do think they they exist in their own little worlds. I found Clans of Caledonia is maybe the one I'd almost want to play more often because it can be played in a shorter amount of time and, you know, give you time to play other things as well, rather than sort of committing the time to Gaia Project. 
Also, I would say that, um, and this is this is honestly a big pro for Gaia Project, is that I tend to not like playing it because it very much rewards frequent play. And everybody I know that owns it and plays it has played it a lot. So every time I play a game like that or Terra Mystica, I'm signing up for fourth place no matter what. Right. And so because Clans of Caledonia is faster, you could probably get more reps in. Correct. And it's a little bit, I found it a little faster to get into the strategy of the game. Well, and nobody in our group has played it 15 times. There's There's that too. I've played it, I think, three now, which still is not enough to really give a full impression on it, but I'm I'm really starting to like the game. That's my thoughts on Clans of Caledonia. Enjoyed it quite a bit, and I think uh, lots of other people in our group will like it as well. I think that's a sure winner. I agree, and for the mogul scale, I think we're giving that a 3C, right in the middle. Uh, I agree. Just kind of right in that nice, comfy pocket of midway heroes. Right, and the final game that we were able to play yesterday, Tyler and I both showed up a little bit early. We showed up, I think, at 5.30ish, and we were able to play a game of Azul by Michael Kiesling. This is a classic game we've talked about in the last episode, and I ended up trading for it. And the person that I traded for, GK Frost, on Board Game Geek, was so kind to say, hey, I'm just going to buy you a new copy from Amazon because it's going to cost me eight bucks to ship it and might as well just get you free shipping from Amazon. So very nice gesture. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And it was great. Still love Azul. It's, I think, one of my favorite really lightweight games that we play fairly often with a group of lesser gamers. But Tyler and I have played a whole bunch of games. It's just nice to hop into something without having to explain the rules. The one thing that is weird, though, and you'll confirm this, and I'm not pointing an accusation that this is the way it is. The colors of my copy of Azul are very strange. They are the box is noticeably greener. Yeah, I'm still going to keep the game, even if it was a there. There's there's a lot of talk in the board game world about Amazon counterfeits or let me rephrase that counterfeit games being in Amazon's main stock. My production copy is fine. It is totally playable. It's pretty. It's fine. It looks it looks fine. It feels totally fine. The, The little tiles are totally okay. But the box and kind of in general in the printing feels like it's a couple levels more saturated than the other ones. You actually brought your copy to compare because I was like, something feels wrong about this. What was your take on it? So I purchased my copy approximately a year ago. So if yours just came from Amazon and mine was purchased a year ago, unquestionably, they were from different print runs. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Maybe even different print factories. Different print factories. There's a lot of different things that could have happened about that. And so... There absolutely were differences in them. I mean, the the colors of the plastic and the tiles were a little bit different. I mean, you put them side by side and you could tell the difference for sure. But it's not like one was purple and the other one was aqua. They were just, you know, slightly darker purple. Right. You know, the box art was blacker, more saturated. It was, you know, it darker was greener. That was the other thing that was weird. It yep. just kind of looked green. The blue. So it was like they like skewed colors or something. Right. The blue was uh, the blue had a little more of a greener tinge on it. And but having said that, you know, all the materials were of equivalent quality. And so I don't know if it's a different print run or if this was a, uh, you know, B-stock game that kind of fell off the back of the wagon and got resold or I I don't know. I don't know what to say on that one. But personally, if I had that copy of it, I'd be perfectly happy of it. I don't know that I would have noticed the difference. Um, It was just strange because my apartment gets a lot of natural light and it has white walls. So usually colors are pretty good in my apartment. And so I remember looking at it and I just played Azul maybe a week before. I was like, something about this looks a little different. It was just strange. It was kind of a weird, weird notice because I personally think that the counterfeit statements on 
that, that like there's so many you if you browse reddit that happens every once in a while did i get a counterfeit copy of this game i think those might be a little overstated but this was my first interaction with games looking noticeably different yeah and i firmly believe a lot of the air quotes counterfeit games are really b-stock games that are being unauthorized resold right or third shift things yeah. like b-stock meaning that they run like five percent right. more of a print run knowing that there's going to be some that didn't work out just perfect and then instead of going into the dumpster somebody's selling them on an amazon store there you go makes sense but anywho thank you very much um for the game i i really like it thank you gk frost cool great well what's next we actually have a longer discussion coming up about a couple of games that we played, and both of these are milestone kind of event games that we have made a point of playing because we've been very interested in them and looking forward to talking at a little more depth about those with you, Jake. Right. We I would actually even say that we played these games specifically for content for the podcast, which is amazing because we are welcome world. We don't do that. No, we do not. We play what we want to play. That's why I think we've talked about Crusaders that will be done about eight episodes in a row. Probably not. <laughs> but you know what? Hey, when a game I really want to play intersects with something that I think will make great content, everybody wins. Win, 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 win. Fantastic. So the first one on that little list of things is one I talked a little bit about last week. That game is Feudum by Mark K. Swanson and Odd Bird Games. What's different this time around is that, Jake, you actually got a chance to play that with me last week at Fantasy Flight. I did. We didn't play a full game of it, which we should just let people know. And you've played one other additional game time beyond this correct correct and full disclosure up front this is a first impressions thing this is not a review it's not an in-depth uh, nuanced strategy discussion this is literally our impressions after playing it <laughs> somewhat south of two times right we did get close to ending the game but i think we missed out on the the last era correct correct yeah and uh, again thanks fantasy flight uh <laughs> goddamn fantasy flight i say that out ah, loud. just keys stay open an we hour we just finished we, our entire life i know i know oh it's so frustrating right. uh, you know I, to be fair i guess we should be thankful for the fact that they do actually provide that space for free for us to use and you know we buy food and games and beverages as a thank you but it is actually free space at the end of the day right okay yeah well we'll, we'll figure it out. okay let's go on to the let's go on to the discussion so <laughs> it ended up being a night where it was just jake and i and after doing a little checking to see whether feudum was actually going to be a good fit for two people it seemed that the discussion that we found was that it works well at two it's just the nature of the game changes so much, and it did end up playing out a little differently than at three. So big difference is at two players, it's a little more sandboxy. The more players you throw into the arena, the more interactive and confrontational it gets. So there's a big chunk right. of the game that I'm not sure that we saw. But be cool. before we get into that, a little quick background on the game. Yeah. Feudum is a game that was, that was kickstarted know, a year and a half, two years ago, and was delivered approximately a year ago. Something like that. Yeah, I think around Gen Con time yeah. of last Gen Con. Yeah. And it is absolutely one of the most gorgeous games that I own in my collection. And we'll talk a little bit more right. about that. Well, well, and that's that's my background with the game. I saw the Kickstarter, almost got drawn into it, saw their booth at Gen Con, almost got drawn into it again, and then saw that you traded for it. So I was jazzed. And I did not know when I was trading for it that what I was getting was the full blast Kickstarter blinged out version with all the bells and whistles in the box. So. I made out like a bandit on that trade. I'm super happy about that one. I've always been tangentially interested in this game just because it looked pretty and it seemed unique. And I actually have, I don't know, sort of a uh, love for weird little lost puppies in the gaming world, shall we say. And the reviews that I was hearing was bearing that fact out. The game itself is a uh, very large board that really is two games in one. The center part of the map is what it 
fairly traditional dudes on a map game where you go around to different locations on the map. You travel about, you gain influence in those areas, and the more influence you have, the more you quote-unquote rule those locations. And you score points based on ruling those locations. On the outside of the board, there is a series of six guilds that those guilds actually give you benefits by doing those. And the whole idea behind the guilds is that there's a circular economy where you're trying to push goods from one guild to the next, to the next, to the next, and converting them around there. And the game rewards you points for having done that. The neat twist of the game is, is that those two somewhat individual games are highly connected in that in order, if you do well in the dudes on the map game, you gain a lot of influence in the guilds and you take control of those guilds. Likewise, right. If you do the actions well in the guilds, it gives you benefits out on the map that allow you to do better at the dudes on the map part of the game. Right. And you can also pull from each one of those cube pusher sections into the game in some way or another or push into them from the actual dudes on the map portion of the game. Yeah, exactly. Like one example is when you if you have a farm, you can produce farm goods and you can sell that to the farmer guild to just turn those farm goods into food, for example, and get some victory points for having done it. And that was the one thing I missed out about the game. But continue. I don't want to get derailed here. The Alchemist Guild, for another example, will actually, as part of one of its actions that you can do, if you're the guild master, you can actually create vehicles that can be used out on the map. And that's sort of your responsibility to do so. And you earn victory points for having done that. Another example of cases where the two interact in ways that are synergistic and help you do better at the other part of the game. Right. Now, smash cut to when the game is actually delivered and the first review copies came out. Looks beautiful. Check. Interesting gameplay and lots going on there. Check. Almost instantly, the uh, very controversial reviews started flowing in on this one. It was not the game that people thought they were getting. I think everybody got sucked in by a very engaging Kickstarter video. And all the beautiful bits and all the stuff in the box and got a hold of it and realized that this was this is not a medium weight euro. This is not a two hour play little. We'll learn this quick and whip it out on a Wednesday night game night for the most part. Right. Yeah. And in fact, Jake, you have some firsthand experiences of people that were almost pulled in on that. Right. So my my, my good friends and uh, cousins, Ryan and Alexis, they were at Gen Con with me and they are more RPG people than board game people. And when they do play board games, they're usually not on the heavier end. We've taught them 18xx, and I think they had a good experience, but you they usually re, re, That's not reach their for games. Yeah, it's not their wheelhouse. That's a perfect way to put it. And Alexis is a graphic designer, and she has a wonderful taste, and she can really see beautiful things. And she saw this game, and she was so captivated by it that she almost ended up buying it. And I was like, Alexis, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't. Please don't. This is probably not a game for you and Ryan. And thankfully, she didn't. But, I mean, just the presentation of this game is just phenomenal. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. And I actually slept on it for a while, too, that um, I had heard the mediocre reviews on it. But over time, more and more very positive reviews came up. I've heard a number of people listed in their favorite games of all time and <laughs> absolutely love it. Also, I've heard people say that it's a total mess and they want nothing to do with it. So when I had the opportunity to get a copy for it at a very reasonable price, I thought that was an excellent opportunity to find it out for myself and develop my own opinion on the topic. Correct. So let's talk about that presentation just because I, I've literally wanted to the entire time. I, I, I would want to make videos just for games <laughs> if this was how pretty every single game looked. For sure. So, Why don't you go ahead and drive this part? Perfect. This is without a doubt the best looking game I've ever interacted with. Hard stop. The bits. I mean, you have the deluxified super bonus everything being cool yeah you're, thing, but your jaw was on the floor as i was unpacking the game you were just like what 
what? <laughs> what? How the are they expecting yeah, I mean, to just... make money on this game? What? And the other thing, the other thing about it is we've all gotten somewhat not desensitized, but we're somewhat accustomed to the way that board games look. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are either like edgy, kind of gross portrayal of women and like barbarians and like a bunch of exposed muscles and really inefficient. You mean chainmail bras are not useful? Yeah. Right. Who would have thought? And then there's also games where it's just like Clement's Franz, kind of quaint little artwork that's cute. And then there's kind of the whole, you know, tool, modern kind of school of thought that I'd, I'd kind of put oink in. But this is almost unlike all of the other ones. The colors are a weird color palette that's almost pastel. The quality of the bits are again, phenomenal. And they're all individually colored in different artwork, like the the different rosary beads and everything along those lines. I mean, I cannot overstate how well done the production of this game is from a physical standpoint. Yeah, for sure. You know, just lots of little bits like foil cards and foil printing on things and UV spot shiny places on things and 3D castings of things and thick tokens and metal coins and embroidered haversacks and... (laughs) Right. Every step, every interaction with that is a high touch experience. Right. Which just makes you really want to enjoy the experience being presented in front of you. And we should say, Mark and I are not hoity toity. We need all of our games to look pretty people. I mean, hell, we love 18xx games and pretty objectively, those are not always the prettiest games in the world. Nope. But just having something that's pretty to look at can really help you be in the right mindset to enjoy the game. Yeah. And this game really uh, has a very captivating mindset around it because it is so beautiful. And they, you know, the people are so whimsical looking and the little monsters are so stinking cool looking. The little, uh, you know, the behemoth that you can trot around the board and wreck and havoc serpent, with is, yep. is a creature that looks straight out of one of those Rankin and Bass Christmas specials, shall we say? You know, like the... Uh, <laughs> the year without a santa claus it looks like a monster straight oh, out of that well child of the 70s Got jake it. what do you do i'm sorry I'm, I'm a child of the 90s <laughs> they still show those on tv jake fyi eh, don't watch tv i'm too millennial okay so everything about that captures and brings you in there's another level of it too that we should probably discuss is the the presentation and the artistic side is beautiful and oftentimes when there is form sometimes the form overtakes the function of it and it's funny there are a couple of notable cases where I say they uh, they failed pretty miserably at this but by and large I found the the iconography to be awfully good in this game see this is the first time that we're going to disagree I would disagree pretty strongly pretty pretty hardly i will say this may be more so for me because i have notoriously bad eyes and i don't wear glasses or contacts because i'm a dumbo and so when symbols aren't very big and they're very small and detail-oriented especially on this big long board it's hard for me to read them sometimes so you'll see it sometimes sometimes i'll really crane in really close to see some things and this falls on me if i had better glasses i bet you i wouldn't be so disagreeing here but if they were to just make all of this all of the actual iconography part of this game on the board bigger because it's such a massive board, I think it'd work a little better. Yeah, so I, I think I'm actually differentiating from the um, the information portrayed versus the physical presentation of it, if that makes sense. Okay. I agree with you. Explain they, that. Yes, icons could be bigger and more differentiated. They could be oh, easier Oh, but they're good see. icons. But, but they're, they're good, good icons. icons. Yes, that's I what I would I'm agree saying. with that completely. Yeah. With the exception being the different water. Yeah, the bone to pick that I was going to make is exactly the bone to pick that you made. The iconography is good, but the design is so busy that in a lot of cases that good information gets lost in the graphic design because it's either too small, too dark, or just too busy. 
One great example right. of that is there are multiple ways that you can travel on vehicles. There's an airship, there's a submarine, there's a boat, and there are paths on the board that show where you can go. Like there are little bubbles where the submarine can go and there's little waves where the ship can go and there's little birds where the airships can go. They're not easy to tell apart, especially when no, they're, they're all on top of each other. The water, right? Yeah, there and are places cool. where I mean, on top I'm, of each other. Right. Don't get me wrong. I like that idea from a from a design standpoint. It's a neat idea, but I think it could have been implemented a little better because would this game be as pretty with just different colored lines everywhere in between different spots? I, I think it's neat that it is more of a piece of art that you're trying to parse out these symbols. But I think they could maybe go a little bit harder with the different bubbles and all that stuff. I think the other place that it's a little bit challenging is trying to parse out like there are different places where you refill resources out on the board and it says put a you know, resource cube on every location marked with an E. Yeah, it's like, oh. Those things are tiny. Those are hard to find. Right. And so they're, they're generally the most eastern city within that location or town or whatever the heck you call them. But some of them are confusing and the different symbols to describe the different locations is also kind of annoying. You just kind of have to know it's it's frustrating, but it's such a beautiful production. I'm almost yeah. willing to deal with it. And where the iconography is very useful and good are places like on the action cards. What does this action card do? Well, it's actually very kind of pictogrammy showing exactly what it does. And once you understand the pictograms, you don't often have to refer back to the rule book. Also, too, when you do the push pull actions, moving the stuff in the circular economy in the guilds, it says exactly what you have there. You however many rows you complete, you get that many, you know, you get these three level of victory points. Fairly easy right. to understand. Right. However, I think we should probably discuss the elephant in the room here about yeah. this game. OK, let me talk about some of the criticisms that have been leveled against this game. And one of the big ones is, is that it's air quotes fiddly and this is something we talked about extensively before either of us played it and the oh i don't know you know it might be kind of fiddly it's the rumor out, out it's fiddly well and also I've, I've heard it's everything in the kitchen sink on top of it being fiddly yes adding in the game yep 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 and one one could call that air quotes the the cones of dunshire in gaming so we'll get back Correct. to that i'm sure jake you'll have an opinion on that i'm sure i will <laughs> to me fiddly is the wrong word Fiddly is tax code to me. You know, there's a million little exceptions. There's if this, then this, otherwise that, but only if this. And if it's a Tuesday, then you do that. Or if it's this case, then you do that. Otherwise you do that. And, you know, on and on and on. That to me is fiddly. This game does not have that. It's not the easiest rule set in the world. It's a complex rule set. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But I would say your average Lacerda game is, air quotes, fiddlier, especially Lisboa. There are a lot of lists of now do this, then do that, then do this. If you do that, then do that, then do that. This game does not have that. So is your your definition of, of fiddly steps in an order? So like, for example, let's take the building action in Lisboa, for example. Is that because it has like eight or seven different subsets to how do you actually build the building? Is that fiddly to you then a non-fiddly way of building a building is you pay a cost you put the building down and you earn the amount of points that are printed on that space right got it okay yep a fiddly way of building that building is to have a specific color of a building permit that you had to have achieved earlier that you have to spend in advance <laughs> and then you find a location on there that allows you to get that and your cost is variable depending on the type of rubble that is there and oh by the way you remove one first and once you place it there, oh you get a reward when you put that thing down too great and you put that down and how many do i score well let's see do you have you completed all of the public buildings? oh you don't have any public buildings i guess you don't score oh you do oh yeah okay you get you know x number of public buildings times the side and you multiply that times the bottom thing that's how you score. But then later when another puppy. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay. I would agree. However, I would disagree with your sentiment that this does not have 
tax code level case scenarios, if you will, where there is at some point in time on a Tuesday, you might do this action. Like, for example, when you take certain resource cubes, you can take them into your personal supply or you can add them to your wine barrel. Yeah. Or for another example, the, there my, are a my couple main of thing those. about the fiddly right about is it's not consistently fiddly. So say what you will oh, about fair. Lisboa, yeah. and I have. Oh, and by the Certain way, actions in that game are kind of all the same way. I'm a big fan of Lisboa, so. You know, put, oh, completely. Put, put I'm, the pitchforks I'm, down. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I, I would give Lisboa, meh. I think I gave it like a six on Board yeah, Game Geek. It's not a bad p- game. Pitchforks down, everybody. Pitchforks down, yeah. Please please don't attack us for this. But it's, it's not consistently fiddly. Like, for example, if you're going to do a move action and you're not picking something up, that action is really simple. But let's say you do a farmer action and you're the farmer skilled person and you have XYZ different location for that. You can make certain actions be a lot more fiddly and a lot more rules complicated than other ones. So it doesn't feel even across the board. Yeah. In regards to its fiddliness. I would agree with that. And there are what's funny is, is that, yeah, there are random little places where there's like one little extra thing that you forgot about. Like we missed one. Say you come up and you do the farmer guild action where you take the resources and and send them up to the farmer's guild. We completely forgot that whoever rules that location actually gets one of those as well. You have to pay out the right. you have to pay out the landowner before you sell off his goods. Right. And so that's the whole thing that, that is confusing about this. There are not as many steps to each action as a Lacerda game, and we're going to keep on comparing them to these because that's just something that's in our wheelhouse. But there is still some subsets. And the wideness of the actions in this game, there's 17 action cards, right? And you're only going to choose four of them each turn, sure. but there's a lot of different individual action. An amount of them can be upgraded to like a special if you control or have this style of pawn. Sure. Action. Sure. Yes. I, and I would replace fiddly with four. I would call it 4D chess. It's very complex in terms of the decision space that you have in there. And I think that's where the, uh, you know, the complexity really sinks in. And I think that's what people sometimes misnomer as being fiddly. So, yes, I agree. There's some fiddliness to that. But I wouldn't say that's the primary taste. The primary taste that comes out to me is the strategic complexity in this one. And maybe it's not even strategic complexity. Maybe it's decision complexity because the the strategies are somewhat straightforward to do. But deciding which of those things you can do and how to do it is a (laughs) really, really hard question. Yeah, that's a really hard question to figure out. So then going back to the other controversy. Do you think this game is Cones of Dunshire? I think we have different mental connotations on what that means. Right. And we should probably explain what Cones of Dunshire is just quick for two seconds. So in the TV show Parks and Recreation, one of the main characters, can't remember the guy's name, but he's the accountant guy, the kind of nerdy guy who's from our neck of the woods. Or at least the character is he's from Minnesota, I guess. And he is like unemployed and he's a hyper productive guy. So he makes like a board game over like seven days of no human contact. And it's a big joke because it goes, it's like the most complicated board game. And it's what what most average lay people think of when they think of board games. They're like, oh, these are so complicated. What are you doing? And so people have kind of co-opted that term in the board game space to refer to a game that has everything in it and maybe too much of everything in it. If they would have taken out certain aspects of it, it maybe would have been better. Not saying that specifically for Feudum, but kind of what the term Cones of Dunshire means and how we're going to use it. Yeah. Using that as a base definition, I, I can I can get behind that. I think I have always read it as being more pejorative than than, than you're taking it as. So by calling it Cones of Dunshire, is, I take that as being a, a strongly negative review. I don't think it's strongly negative and maybe I'm wrong. Please let us know if it's like the worst thing you could hear about a board game. But to me, it's almost as an implication to say if this game were to have 20 percent less in it, 
it might benefit from it. If you'd imagine like a, a chart of the optimal amount of for amount of rules or complexity for the game length and game experience, it's a little bit beyond that level. Yeah. Now, it's funny about that, though. Every time everybody says that, the first thing I do is I go, OK, maybe there is extra stuff in there. What would I get rid of? Um, right. And we don't um, <laughs> proclaim to be board game designers or developers or anything. But yeah, I mean, it's the same point. I don't know what I'd get rid of. All of it seems to have a reason, I guess. I mean, this is not what we like to do with games, but let's just pretend that all of the ships were the same. Does that help the game? I don't think so. I think there is a reason to have limitations on being able to reach certain areas and different steps to get to different areas. Got it. Do you need to have the wine cellar for the sulfur? I think it's one of those things. That could So could you get away with just an Agricola style feeding where you have food and you feed everybody? Yeah, you probably could. It does make for an interesting game fix, though. One of the reasons that's there is because somebody could legitimately try starving the game out of resources by not pushing the economy. And that right. actually sort of happened with influence tokens in our game where you were not pushing influence tokens in and I was starving for influence tokens. There's a mechanism in the game called a feast where if you're at a pawn that's the right type or if you're at a feudum, you can actually take that person's guild master thing. Basically, you can have a feast, get them drunk and <laughs> then go ahead and take their action for them. And oh, by the way, take all of their points and their money and some extra bonus points for doing that. It's a real game swingy thing that you don't want to have done to you, but it's a little right. hard to line up. And one of the core things behind that is you have to spend uh, you know, the wine out of your wine cellar in order to do that, the, the, the sulfur out of your wine cellar. Yeah, I just I, and, and I don't know. I, I'm asking these questions from a rhetorical standpoint, not from a Jake knows all the answers standpoint, because I've never designed a game. There's probably a lot of aspects to it that I don't understand. I also think the but, um, the aspect of you can either feed your people with food and then they're good for one turn or you can feed your people with wine, which lasts them for two turns, but they're unable to, to defend themselves against attack from the turn after that. Is that good game design? I don't know, but it's kind of funny thematic. I like it. Right. No, I, I agree, too. It seems like everything has a reason for why they included it in, in the game. But it just a lot of the fiddliness of the game comes from the kind of points that we're hitting home about the cones of Dunshire aspect of it. There's just so many things to consider, and they don't have always a lot of implications to it. The sulfur is really you can spend it from there to do a feast and you can also spend it there to feed your people wine. Right. But then that Correct. hurts them for some example. Yep. Right. For a couple of turns. So that's really all it's doing. But that's one thing that's in the game that you have to consider. There's so many little things like that they have to consider. And I think that that pushes it to a point, which is why people think it's fiddly. And I don't know if I disagree with them. So to me, the one thing that actually is uh, maybe superfluous, unfortunately, is one of the one of the cooler things in the game. I I'm not sure those monsters are necessary. Yeah, probably. And I mean, I mean it, it so works for great so cover. Cool. Yeah, but well, that's the whole thing. And, and they've done such a good job of making such a rich and evocative, really original art style and kind of presentation of a board game that I don't want to get rid of those little monsters. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I like them. They're 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 unnecessary, but I really like them. And maybe this game has everything in the kitchen sink th thrown to it. But do we need another midway euro that's had all of the interesting things ironed out of it? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll actually address that one a bit in my final thoughts. So let's not uh, let's not quite jump ahead to that because yeah, let's I let's, let's opinions on that one. All right. So totally. um, one other thing on it, too, is that because of the fact there's a lot going on and there is a learning curve, I, I believe it definitely would reward more frequent play. I think that this is one that is not a game that would be well served by coming off the shelf once every nine, every 18 months or something like that. Right. 
Having said that, I the rules actually are stickier than I would think, so I don't know that the relearn time would be that bad. I mean, I almost cold taught it the other night just on my second teach. Right, because it was strange. We totally thought we'd go there, but you'd have Brent to help us, and regrettably, he couldn't come with. He was feeling under the weather, so you were kind of paused to pump the brakes on it, and yeah, I mean, you taught it well. I understood the game totally fine. You did a good job. Yeah, but I think because it's so strategically rich that if you did play it more regularly, you would understand how to optimize the machine that's there and to be able to use it more efficiently. I think that would uh, dramatically reduce playtime because there'd be, you know, much less just wide open, you know, blue sky, green field pondering what to do. Right. So let's talk about some pros and cons of this game. I think we've itemized a lot of them already. For starters, we were both completely captivated by just the notion of it, the experience, the look and feel of it, and the, uh, you know, this object de art that's on our shelves. Would you agree with that? Completely agree. I mean, it's just it's such a nice experience to touch. I used to travel a lot for work and I would rent a lot of cars because my industry is not the most glamorous industry. And so usually the locations that I actually go to are not in the heart of the city. And it's so nice when you can upgrade a car from like the lower end to the higher end Sure. when they give you the free upgrade of the car rental. And this game kind of felt like it where it's like just being in the leather seats of this game and having it be such a premium experience just really brought it. It, it made me more welcoming to it. Like, would you rather do a road trip in my old 2006 Subaru Forester? Would you rather do it in a nice new Audi? I'd probably rather do it in a nice new Audi, you know? Yeah, and I will tell you, um, this is a conversation for a future episode, but one thing we did in our first play is we actually pulled up MellowDice.org, which is a website online that allows you to pull up soundtracks for games that are thematic for that game. And uh, the, th- the theme music for this game was absolutely lovely. It was a lot of Final Fantasy theme music for those that have played that. And it fits in with the theme so perfectly. It really enhanced the experience. Completely agree. Another pro is the massive decision space in this. You really have a lot of decisions that you're going to make and a lot of things that may or may not be used in your tool belt, which is, I think, pretty cool. Yep. Uh, yep. I, I definitely like having more decisions rather than less. I also think that given what it is, given the complexity and the size and so forth, the playtime is somewhat reasonable (laughs) given what it is. It's a big epic thing. And having said that, I think with experienced players, you could play a big epic game of it in three hours, which is good for something of that weight and size. Completely agree. Also, the card selection is just phenomenal in it, too. Yeah, this is really one of the strong points of the game. To background, you have oh, seven, you know, what, 12, 15 cards, something like that. I think it's 17. I think it's 17, but one of them's the repeat. Sure. And what if you I do every round right. is you pick four of those and you one of those could be a repeat. So theoretically, you could do an extra thing in there twice. And if you play out, here we go, Cones of Dunshire. If you play out Assault Peter or Sulphur, you can actually do a couple in a row or you can do a fifth action. That ability to pick the actions that you're going to do, but be able to do them in any order and react to what's going on is really cool. And that was that was really fun and engaging completely. But now we go to the cons here (laughs) and some of the pros are exactly the cons, Yeah, depending on who you are. Really, it's personality related. Right. And so I think one of the big cons here is the massive decision space. It's just so big and every action is not that complicated. I don't find them usually that hard, but there is a little bit of complexity there. It's not as easy as, hey, go here, take three cubes. You know, there's a little bit more subsets than that. And the iconography does a pretty good job, but sometimes it doesn't. And you really need to indoctrinate those rules. And the player aid being two sided really is not that helpful. If it was one sided and twice the size, 
it would be so much more easy to be able to quickly understand the information. Yep. That, that's on That's there. an upgrade. And for the, the player's aid's not right. And the player aid isn't even that detail oriented. They have this huge amount of space and they kind of don't use a lot of words on it. I don't think they want to make it too wordy, but it, it would have really helped me. So another con to it is, you know, there are a lot of things and therefore there are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of this pushes that to there and that moves that to there and this goes here and you move that there and that triggers that. And so there is a fair amount of game management that needs to take place. Somebody at the table needs to be a little more familiar with the game and just sort of keep the train on the rails. Agreed. Now, the biggest train on the rails thing, this is actually my number one beef with the game. We have played Dominant Species a lot. One of the things that makes me absolutely crazy about Dominant Species, crazy in a bad way, is the constant recalculation of Dominance on there. To me, that is... That is fiddly. <laughs> that is oh, that yeah, is something I have zero agree. tolerance for, and it really detracts from my liking of the game. This has that exact same problem in terms of who is the guild master of each guild. Because whoever has the most influence in the farm areas gains guild influence in two different guilds. And if you have a certain pawn out on the board, you gain influence in that particular guild. And if you have Feudum, you gain a lot of points in that particular guild. That's not so bad. The problem is this stuff shifts a lot. Hey, I just upgraded my my farm to a town. Oops, that recalculated four guilds. <laughs> right. And I have to redo that. And it's not it's not like a tally or a track on each guild. It's just added up, you know? Yeah. And that's frustrating. Yeah. So one of the upgrades that 100% is going in are dice to track those things. Uh, the Kickstarter that just closed on this yesterday for Feudum's Rudders and Ramparts included a set of tracking dice for exactly that reason. And I think those will be mandatory. Agreed. And that'll make it a lot better. See, my main complaint with dominant species is that I don't find it fun, but <laughs> snap, I, I can understand that. I, yeah, a little snap, a little snap <laughs> but um, I agree. And I think the final con here is kind of specifically for us. We're trying to be better about playing more games more frequently, especially the ones we really love, but we still have a pretty massive game library between all the people that like to run games at our game nights. And this game really, I think, is for people that are willing to put a lot of time into it to be able to play it repeatedly over a span of a short, short span of maybe three months and really dive into it, and know the game. And I just don't know if that's us. And that's a personal complaint about the game. Having known what this game offers, that might not be an issue for you. But for us, that's probably my main complaint with it is I just don't know if we're going to dig into it. And I, I remember joking about it with you. We have some members in our group that really like to play the same game over and over again. And I was like, I kind of wish one of them owned it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just constantly clamming for it. We'd get five or ten times played in the next couple yeah, of months. Yeah, if only you this know? was Kirk's favorite game. If only, if only, if only. <laughs> All right, let's do final thoughts. I'll summarize mine first. I like it. I thought it was a good game. I still think it's the best case for when people say, oh, that game's Cones of Dunshire. This is the most Cones of dunshire Let's throw every little cool mechanism we can think of into it and see what comes out. But having the presentation of the game be so beautiful really allowed me to maybe see past some of its faults and enjoy the experience. And it really helped carry it, which is an amazing thing to think of. But I'm happy to play it whenever you want to, which will be another conversation about opportunity cost in this <laughs> hobby moving forward. Yeah, for but, sure. Yes. My thoughts on it, too. Yeah, it has... Um it has kind of captivated me. It's uh, it's a bit like going out on a date with somebody you have nothing in common with. I've, I've been married for 15 years. Not that I really remember what this is like. It's sort of that equivalent where you're like, well, I really don't have anything in common. But yet I, I weirdly had a good time and I, I kind of want to go out on another date. I think one of the worst things in board gaming is to play something and feel nothing. 
there's a lot of games out there where you just you played it and you know there was a score and you made some interest you made some decisions and it made you feel nothing this game you can't walk away and feel nothing you will feel something having played this game may not be great may be awesome but I love the fact a game exists that makes you feel something. And that, to me, is great about it. Now, for me, I tend to like special little creatures <laughs> that have their own little weird place in the world and appreciate them for what they are. And Feudum fits into that box. I love it for its weirdness. I love it for its uniqueness. And because of that, I'm at that in the art package, I'm willing to forgive some of its idiosyncrasies. Right. Let's mogul scale this bad boy. Okay. So we should probably preface, when we did the weight thing, yes, we know there are war games that are very complicated out there. Our bias comes from a place of Euro games. So we think like Gaia Project's a four. That's kind of our wheelhouse. You know, there are really complicated games out there. And frankly, that's not our audience. Right. Exactly. We're we're not big war game guys or really complicated com sim guys. For, For our wheelhouse, I'm putting this at a four or five. Probably a five. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? I go back and forth on the rules complexity. We'll do the letter next. It's at least a four. There's no question about that one. The upside is, is yeah, there are a lot of rules and there is a high rule density, but it is actually constrained to one fairly small rule book. It, you know, there are not multiple manuals behind that one. So, um, you know, and I can certainly think of more complex games from just from a rules perspective. Like, I think a Lacerda is more right. rules complex. So based on that, I'm going a four on rules complexity, personally. I could be talked either way in between a four or five, so I'll just condense with you and say four. four. What do you think about strategy complexity? Yeah, four plus, a heavy four. Again, this is challenging. It's a D at least. Is it an E? I I think there's some arguments on how many strategies are there. Somebody might rank a high strategy game as having, you know, a large number of strategies. This is a little different. This is where there's a huge decision space. And does a huge decision space constitute a high strategy rating? I I don't know. So I think I would probably call this a 4E if I were just because you're managing two games at once. So two C's put together make an E maybe. Right. And I think I because I haven't played this game that much, I might be a little biased, but I think I'm going to make I'm in between a C or a D currently. That's fair. Um, But I think that might be because I'm not seeing the forest for the trees. I'm just a little bit too into the game and didn't really see past what the the systems had to offer. Well, why don't we call it a 4D because we agree on that and know that I'm skewing higher on weight and you're skewing higher on strategy. There you go. Let's call it a 4D. Cool. All right. So fun. now <laughs> now for the main event. And I, I think this episode is probably going to run a little bit longer than most of the other ones, but we are super excited to talk about this topic. So we're going to keep on hammering Let's through it. Let's do it. Last night, Mark and I were lucky enough to play Agricola for the first time for both of us, which is designed by Uwe Rosenberg and published by either Z-Man or Mayfair Games, I believe. And as a background, we both promised that we would play this game somewhere back in about episode one, maybe. <laughs> I think it was episode zero, actually. And we said we'd play it by episode four. Yep. And we did not. It's episode 14. We got, the, so we we got part of the four, right? Four. We got four. Yeah, we just we 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 we, we didn't indicate the, the tens place. We're fine. We're totally yep. fine. We have plenty of space. Yep. yep. But the reason why we've wanted to play this one is one of my and your favorite games is Caverna. We love it so much. It's my actually number 15 favorite game in my collection. And we play it every single year at our little buddy con called Clopcon. 
my first four letters of my last name were not weird or anything. <laughs> and it's just such a good experience. I would say it's one of the high watermarks for my gaming year. Every year is playing this because we have only people that have played before are allowed to play it. We usually play in a six player game of Caverna and we just love it. And we've had so many people say Caverna's crap. You need to play Agricola or the other side of that coin saying, oh, no, I threw away my copy of Agricola once Caverna came out. I don't know why anybody would ever play Agricola when Caverna exists. And it seems like a very polarizing issue. Yeah, for sure. There's strong opinions on both sides of that coin. Completely agree. And the only thing I'll give a little pretext before we actually dive into it. I wish I didn't play Agricola because my world was so simple before. It was so manageable (laughs) and I had my head wrapped around it and I want to go back. I want to go back to the simple way things were. So I I will compare this to something in not game space. There's this TV show that I regrettably like. It's called Rick and Morty. And in one of the episodes, the the guy's like a scientist and he tried to explain what real level is because he's making fun of the kid for using one of those little leveler with a little bubble. He sets up true level and it like breaks the kid. He's like, I, I want to go back to the way things were before. Real, the real world is poison and everything's bad. And I want to go back to that, Mark. This is exactly how I feel <laughs> about the Agricola Caverna debate. It just it made both things worse, I think. I, I don't know, but let's yeah, move on. Or did it make it better because now we realize that there's more to that world? I mean, is a is Agricola the Caverna expansion we were hoping for all the time? Or was Caverna actually the Agricola <sighs> I, expansion that we didn't know that we wanted? We'll see. <laughs> so th- there's another sentiment in the gaming world that's called the, the this kind of idea that games can replace or fire other games. In this hobby, that's just all about opportunity cost. I don't know about you guys, but we have a limited time to play games. I would love to play more, but real life gets in the way. Yeah, very I know it often. may not seem like that based on the number of games we play each week and the number of times we get gaming. But trust me, uh, <laughs> I, I'm dealing on a barely life sustaining drip. Right. Completely. Me, too. I mean, we, we love games. That's how this podcast came. We just want to talk about them. In my personal life, I've had some games I've gotten rid of because I view the other version of them just kind of very similar, but better. And so things that have done that for me is I think Ethnos which is uh, done by Cool Mini or not, got rid of Ticket to Ride in my collection. I was happy to get rid of Ticket to Ride. And then there's also other people that have said these other kind of debates. And if you look on the internet, you'll be able to find them. You know, there's people that'll say Gaia Project is just a better implication of the Terra Mystica system than Terra Mystica is. There's a bunch of people that say the opposite. Then there's weirdos that say Clancy Caledonia is the best. I'm not one of those weirdos. But on this list, there's always this Agricola versus Cavernalist. And even on the Reddit Meeple of the Week quiz, which we are like questionnaire, which we actually used in our episode zero to kind of explain our gaming tastes. This is constantly an either or. I mean, it's on the same level of do you store your boxes vertically or horizontally? It's always been comparable. So, Mark, do you think these games are as interchangeable or either or e as people think? For me, it is not an either or. It yes. is an either and. That is my feeling on it after it's an either either and I don't think if mine's an either or, but mine's a you probably don't need both. Sure. I I said this to you later, but we'll talk about this later in, in the thing. But if you own one of them, I don't think acquiring the other one should be high on your list of goals. But they felt very similar to me. And I think what something that made this gameplay interesting was we have played so much Caverna. I think I've played it north of 20 times and it's one of my most played games and I've had it for so long. I actually had it even before in my collection before I started uh, tracking gameplay. So I don't really know how many plays I've had, but they were less similar than I was expecting between the two, between Caverna and Agricola. And they actually felt way less similar than Brass Birmingham and Brass Lancaster. 
which was yeah, interesting. I would um, I, I would agree with that, that I was actually surprised at how different it actually felt. It really felt less like just a different version or an older version of that game than I thought it was going to. And I, I kind of came to appreciate the individuality that it brought forth. Right. So why don't we talk about the pros and cons of both games? And just a quick aside here. Go ahead, Mark. Before we get into that, we should probably back up and actually say what Agricola is. Agricola is a game where you're subsistence farmers in, I think, France or somewhere. You're in Europe somewhere. And you are... Agricola is actually an Italian word. Oh, it is? Oh, interesting. Cool. It might be French too, but it's definitely an Italian word. Yeah, it it, it it could be a Roman word. What you're doing is you are different families trying to make a way of life. And there's a bunch of different ways that you're scored at the end, but it's kind of point salady where you're trying to do everything a little bit, at least to get the most points. Caverna is another game where you're also farmers, but this time you're dwarves. So there's a cave aspect to the game, and it was designed after Agricola. Agricola came out in 2007, and I believe Caverna came out in like 2011 time frame, maybe 12? Somewhere, maybe 2012, somewhere right in there. Yeah. Caverna no. actually came out in 2013, just to clarify. And they feel very similar where there's a bunch of different resources and there's a bunch of different animals and your animals breed and then they fill up and you can eat them and you can convert them into stuff. But why don't we give the pros and cons of each game to kind of summarize them instead of going too deep onto what game each provides? Sound good? And likewise, too, I would also say that there is probably a 75 percent rules crossover between the two of them. Yes, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, by knowing one of them, it was awfully easy to pick up and start playing Agricola because we knew Caverna so well. Right. It's they're, they're worker placement games. The spots, there's a new spot that opens up each turn. And then at the end of the round, at certain rounds, there's a harvest or something, which is when you but have to even make, even more things like how you plant fields. You know, it's exactly, exactly the same between the two. Exactly. Games. How do animals breed? It's exactly the same. But that other 15 to 25 percent difference, it really pushes the two games in different directions. And I thought that was fascinating. Like you said, let's talk about some pros and cons on that. One of the big differences between the two things was that Agricola is a very card-driven game. At the beginning of the game, you're dealt out a, well, (laughs) let's back this up. It was a first play for us, and we dealt out seven cards that we got to pick our, our occupations from, and we got to pick our minor improvements from. Correct. And what you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to draft it, correct? That's the way that's assumed to be played by more experienced players. I asked this question last night online, and the more experienced players said that, yes, you absolutely should draft it once you're familiar with the cards and the game and their interactions, or at minimum, you should do a take 10, discard three. Right. Just so you can have a little bit more selection on the cards, because that's really what's so interesting about Agricola. It's a huge pro. It does a couple of things. I think it results in a vast higher degree of replayability than Caverna. Unquestionably. But a big aspect of the strategy in this game is finding the efficiencies in the cards so you can best make your strategy around it. Yeah. And then, you know, all of the actual farming and agrarian ship that's happening on your boards at some level is just supporting and enhancing the uh, the benefits that you're getting from those cards. Correct. But that also is a bit of a con. We'll get to that in a bit. Another aspect of Agricola that I found just wonderful was the pastures. So how pastures work in Caverna is they're just tile upgrades, which we'll get to a bit when we explain this on the Caverna pros. And uh, they're two by one little tiles. You have a big grid board where I think it's 12 or maybe 15 in one and bigger in the other. But you put them out and you can put a certain number of animals in them depending on the size. 
But in Agricola, you actually put down fence posts and make pastures for animals, and it can hold a certain amount depending on the size of it. And I really liked the creativity in this, in the usage of fencing, to be able to hold different types of animals different ways, and you can come through later and cut those up. It was just very open, and I enjoyed that aspect of the game. And we saw. Did you like that? How would I know? I never laid a single fence down. (laughs) (laughs) That was a bit of a loaded Uh, question. Yeah, well, we actually saw Eric at one point drop down an 11 fence chunk all at once to fence in literally like his entire pasture in one big swoop. It was amazing. Yeah, and I think that was just so cool. And it really felt like it from a thematic standpoint and a cool game standpoint. He had a bunch of sheeps and it'd be funny to we I was imagining that the sheeps kept on being eaten by little foxes or wolves or something. Coyotes, depending on wherever this game is. Begrudgingly, Eric put up so many more fences and made like a smaller fenced area where the sheep actually slept and then an area where they grazed. And I thought that was just hilarious <laughs> to see that, to see actually uh, uh, his little farmstead turn into something like that. Right. And um, we, we played it as a five player game, which, it, you know, that's only available in the Z-Man version, the older Z-Man version, which is what I have. If you have the revised version. That's four player only. You don't get to play five players. I think there's an expansion to it that makes it five. Yeah, I think so. Like an extension. So it actually moved pretty breezily for a five player game. Like the downtime was really not that bad. Yeah, I I pushed the game real hard, hoping I'd still be able to play Imperial 2030, as I said earlier. But yeah, this game was two, three hours with teach and setup and teardown. Yeah, which was man, that's great. I mean, I think it probably plays quicker than Caverna, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I don't know if it's different enough to call it one way or another. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. The funny part about it, what changes in the different games is the action selection spots that you have on the board vary by player count. And the ones that we had out there for five players literally only had one fencing space out the entire game. And brother, was that hard fought after. But Mark, that's what's so cool about this game is the tightness in it. And so much to the chagrin of, I guess, some people, I don't know if chagrin is the right term, but I usually like less tight games. In our discussion between Brass Birmingham and Brass Lancashire, which we've talked about ad nauseum and I don't think we should ever talk about again, I prefer Brass Birmingham because it's more open. And I thought that would be the case here with Caverna versus Agricola, but the opposite was actually true. I much preferred the tightness and the brutality in the Agricola game compared to Caverna. And it actually, we'll talk about it later, but I thought it was actually a downside of Caverna after playing. Yeah, I thought the level of interactivity and interaction in the game was was much higher than I would have guessed. In fact, there was lots of laughing and cussing and fist shaking and swearing at each other over somebody taking an important spot or grabbing resources. And I really like that gameplay where you're like, oh, you son of a gun, you took that spot. Why did you take that? I mean, that's a great gaming experience. I mean, I thought I was going to lose the game because I had a good early cow strat going and I was going to have so many cows. And so all I needed was an oven and you bought it one turn before me. <laughs> not, 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 not one round, one turn, like literally you were three people away from me and had both other people at an oven and I had all the resources to buy it right then. I just couldn't buy it due to turn yep. play. The other thing that was tight in the game besides the action spaces, which was very interesting, which to give Caverna its due, we still curse at each other a bunch sure. in Caverna. Again, it's not that much more, but Agricola definitely edges it out there at least when the with for the action placement spot. But the brutality in feeding your family is an ever-present issue and a concern, and you're always considering it. Every single action is a consideration for how am I going to feed my family at the end of this. I went with a very small family, and at the very end of the game, 
I was doing an action just to make sure I'd feed them, which in Caverna is rarely the case. It seems like towards the end of the game. And that was due to me having to pivot because Mark screwed my life over and bought the last oven. And just having to pivot like that and always worrying about food was something I really enjoyed versus in Caverna. It seems like you care about at the beginning. And at the end, it's like, you don't have your food up and running. What the heck are you doing? You know, I'm sure that it's literally one action where you have are forced to just take some food or maybe overproducing a little food can cost you the game. I for sure think I overproduced food at one point there. And as a result, it caused me to not be able to take turns that allowed me to fence, which absolutely cost me the game later on. I mean, it's that tight that you look at just a couple little decisions and gone, hmm, if I would have maybe not taken that one thing and done something a little more efficient, I, that could be a several point swing. Completely agree. The other thing that's an outcome from, I believe, the cards is that there's more finer grain strategies in Agricola than what I found yep. in Caverna. And what that means is you can really be the sheep guy or the stonehouse guy or I was the cow guy or the early vegetable guy because of how powerful those cards that they're dealt out and and you have all these opportunities to be able to do. You can really micro-focus on trying to just uh, maximize this one little thing to extreme advantage, which later on in the game you can maybe convert to food, or you can get a bunch of extra rocks which allow you to upgrade your house. And so there's a lot of different ways you can push strategy in that game. Right, completely. And it's not something where it's just, okay, sheep are worth one point each, have a crap load of sheep. They max out at a certain point of, I think, believe it's four points for everything. But getting early and good at something means that you can pivot that resources and uh, accomplishments into the other aspects of the game, which I found very neat. I agree. All in all, a lot of pros to the game. Not saying that it's all it's all sunshine and rainbows. What did we think are some of the downsides that we found with Agricola? You live by the cards, you die by the cards, Mark. (laughs) And so for sure. Yeah, 100%. And I think that this may be in the first play because we didn't draft resulted in a bit of a hollow victory for certain people because the cards are very strong and we need to look through you do you own the game Um, i think there's certain cards that have been banned and really have been flagged as good and i think going through those and taking out the ones that are banned and making sure that you're at an even playing field with all the cards at least as much as what people have decided is fair would be really good there are some known combos too that if you have this occupation and this minor improvement that you got such a solid engine going that you're going to probably win the game. I know there's definitely some things out there that if you can get that synergy going, that um, it provides you a big advantage. And knowing that those exist and to look for them is a big boon. Right. And so that's the other thing is it can be a hollow victory with the cards. I think that can be mitigated by drafting and maybe dealing 10 cards out as your first play and keeping seven or something. But it still is going to be there. There's always right. that thought at the end of the thing. Well, Mark got this card. Let's say we were sitting at the opposite ends of the table. We had Eric between us and then Tyler and John in between us. Let's say, for example, you choose a card in between two and pass that card to Tyler. Tyler doesn't choose the the, the one of the two that you didn't want. And then John doesn't give and gives it to me. And that's a really good card. And they just missed it. And it perfectly works with my strategy. So now you're mad because you should have taken that card or something. And Tyler and John just decided not to. And just because the cards are so strong and make it so replayable and so cool and help tight, tighten up the game and make it a finer grain strategy. It can also feel like, well, just randomness hurt me in this game. You know, I was actually given my copy of uh, of Agricola by my friend JJ, who considers that Caverna 100 percent fires Agricola and really had no desire to ever play Agricola again now that he owns Caverna. So he actually just gave me the game along with a couple others and trade for building an organizer for him. (laughs) Yeah. 
the big the nice. rising sun organizer. Very nice. Very kind yeah. of him. But that was the number one thing he listed on there was he said he goes, oh, you just, you, man, if somebody gets a great card combo thing, you're just hosed and there's no point in playing. And it's not Race for the Galaxy. This is not a under 45 minute game. This is a bit. I think even with experienced players, maybe you can cut it down to hour and a half, two hours, maybe with a lower player count. But it's a long game. It's not fast. Oh, oops, you won kind of thing. You know, the other thing I don't know is I don't know if, if they ever drafted or if they drew 10, kept seven. I, I don't know if they did anything like that. True. So maybe they never mitigated it correctly. That will lower this thing. But I still think it's an ever present concern with the game. Yep, I would agree with that completely. On the other side of the uh, versus thing, comparing and contrasting to Caverna. Let's talk about a few things we love and like about Caverna, looking at it through the lens of Agricola. Perfect. Most of these pros you can actually view as Agricola cons and vice versa on the other things. I think we'd start it off with it just felt a little bit more refined from a production standpoint. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, I would. You can definitely tell that this is a 2007-ish design versus a 2012 design. They've learned a few things in gaming since then. Well, and we just mean that in like the board layout and like the card choices and the fact that some action spots are just smaller for random reasons. And in the original production, I believe it just comes with cubes. Caverna is more expensive, but it comes with the animeeples. But it's just I, I don't know how to say it, but polished, but maybe not from a game design standpoint, but really from like a how the game works and plays and interacts with it, if that makes sense. To be fair, the more recent releases of Agricola do actually have the animeeples instead of the cubes. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure they have a better graphic design, little overhaul, so oh, it's yeah, not using yeah. those small little sheep. I, I am I, playing I a very old version of Agricola, so. I agree. <laughs> that does I, have to be kept in mind. Right, totally. But it's still going a little bit beyond that. If I'll just leave it at that. From a production and kind of just interacting with the game, you can kind of figure it out a little bit more from, from, that, sure. from that standpoint. The other thing that I think is a huge pro for Caverna is that it's an open playing field from the beginning of the game. We play a high level Caverna game every single year. You've been at the last two yep. and it's cutthroat. Oh, yeah. People <laughs> are mad at you. We have gentlemen's agreements on like not taking the overhang one. I don't take it anymore and all this different stuff. But you know that the decisions that you made for the most part resulted in you winning. Maybe there were some lurking variables like, why the heck did Steve keep on taking my freaking action spot? Or why did the person to my left keep on taking first player from me, even though he was going to be second and I was not going to take a spot or something along those lines still exists, but it feels less like that with Caverna than it did with Agricola. Sure. Yes. Because of the fact that you don't have something that's pre-driving your strategy. Correct. Because you can say, okay, well, what am I going to do this turn? And you kind of have to read the room and pivot and make sure that you're not doing the same thing as everybody else. But it just, it feels a touch bit more deterministic to me from my limited experience with Agricola. I would say that actually is a bit of a, that could be viewed as a con though. One of my feelings on, on Caverna is that there is a somewhat limited number of actual strategies in there. And that it's very possible, especially in a higher player count game, which we typically play when we play at Clopcon is that 100% you're going to be stepping on at least somebody else's toes, and God forbid you're stepping on two or three or four other people's toes as well. I've had this happen to me where I've decided, okay, here's a strategy, I'm going to go, I'm going, I'm getting this, I'm getting that, and oh, the two people right in front of me in turn order decided to do the exact same thing. So now I have to really inefficiently pivot four rounds into the game, and that's unrecoverable. Right. And it's one of those things, too, where a lot of the times in Caverna, it's the person who does the thing that no one else is doing will win. 
Um, right. So the person that's only the person doing the Ruby mine strategy, all those Ruby spots are piling up. And that could also be said about the fact of don't let him do that. It's the same thing with 18xx. Don't let somebody run away with the game. Change the For board sure. state if you're not winning. Same kind of thing with that. But I agree. Oh, it's funny because almost all of the pros and cons are cons of either themselves or cons <laughs> of the other thing. Yep. yep. <laughs> They're so highly interacted. So the other thing that I found really interesting about Caverna and that I quite frankly missed when I was playing Agricola was I really love the tile placement in this game. So what you yeah, do in yeah. Agricola is you can you can play different things adjacent to. So you can either do pastures and fences. Those have to be adjacent to something you already have. Or you can build different homes off or different rooms off of your home too. But they again have to be adjacent. So there's a little bit of gamey this there, and I'm not saying that it's completely gone, but the tile placement of digging down deep mines and the different options between in Caverna of doing the completely open two different rooms in your cave versus doing the narrow ones. So you can dig down deeper to make a ruby mine and all these different things I found very interesting in Caverna and I thought were lacking in Agricola. You know, really the only placement rules in Agricola are orthogonally adjacent for the most part. Beyond that, you can right. And there's some weirdness with fences. Fences help other fences. You don't have to yeah. put two fences on the right, same spot. Right, right. So that helps. And that's interesting. But I think there's a lot of game in the aspect of managing your tile placement. And I like that decision in Caverna. And I missed it, to be frank, in Agricola. Yeah, definitely a little different twist on that one. Switching over to cons, that is one of the biggest cons of Caverna of all to me. Caverna has this board that has these set of boards that has, oh, I don't know, 50 different buildings, you know, different rooms that you can put out there inside your cave. And these are things that, you know, either drive victory points at the end of the game or give you power ups or give you resources or something like that. And inevitably, I'm at the wrong side of the table from that dumb board. So whenever it comes time for building a board, and this happens in every game, is that people are getting up, walking around the table, studying all 50 of those pieces on there. And man, the game can really grind to a halt if you're not playing with people that know those buildings well and know exactly the building they're looking for. So the tile placement's interesting, but boy, the mechanics of having to sort through those 50 different buildings on the far side of the table is painful. Right. And just to be clear here, I'm not saying that that's the part of the game I like. I don't like the rooms. I'm saying the digging down double layer mines and all that stuff I find more interesting than the furnishing of the buildings. Just to just to clarify. Yep. There. Because I, I, I agree, because that's the big con about Caverna, I'd say. So it seems like what they did from a design standpoint is Uwe said, OK, well, cards are annoying in this game and certain people don't like the tightness of feeding the family. And so he definitely changed those two things. And so what he did is he made a whole bunch of buildings that used to be kind of the same power level up equivalent as cards in Agricola and turn those into a big board market of buildings. But they're all available from the start of the game. And there's only one copy of all of them besides a simple dwelling. Yeah, exactly. And as Mark said, it's really annoying because sometimes you could be playing towards the sheep action or something. And then some guy would just buy the sheep benefit or some sheep benefit because well, he can afford it just because he can afford it. And then he pivots into sheep. And it's like there was nothing I done to prevent this except for buying it earlier. And it's like, I'm sorry I did well at getting sheeps because of the situational advantage of it being that. And it just can feel really annoying because had you been getting a chance to maybe draft the buildings from the start in Caverna or dibs three of them each or something and draft or something, that'd be great. But now all we're doing is adding on more rules to a game that doesn't have them. Yep. You know, I don't want to have to house rule a game. I agree completely. You bring up an interesting point there, which leads into my con number two about how the fact that I'm doing sheep and somebody just bought the sheep building and now I got to pivot hard on that one. 
I do feel that there are dramatically fewer strategies inside Caverna. And winning is more about taking one of the five good strategies and doing it the best. Like the one that most efficiently does one of the five strategies is the one that's going to win. And also maybe as a corollary, the one that had somebody get in their way the least is the one that's going to win the game. See, I don't know. I think what you're saying is you're, you're equating the fact that cards came out and they feel more granular as seeming more paths. But I think you're just attributing different, like larger strategies as more granular with the cards in Agricola than they are in Caverna. Cause I, 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 I don't agree with that sentiment. I think that there are just as many paths. There's more abilities in the little cards so you can get that, but there's just as many pathways to victory in either game, I would say. But I do not disagree with your if somebody else did only was the only person doing a strategy, they will most likely do well with the game. Yeah, and I'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts on this one, too. You know, having played Caverna quite a few times and, you know, spoiler, I love the game. It's one of my absolute favorites, so I'm not ripping on Caverna. But it does feel like the, well, uh, I'm going to be the uh, I'm going to be the, the mine guy or I'm going to be the animal guy or I'm going to be the farm guy. About it. Right. But I mean, <laughs> is that is that any different than I mean, you had a stone thing, but were you the only guy at the table that had a stone building? No, I'm the only guy that decided to attempt to ride that uh, horse to fourth place. <laughs> I went farming well early, but I also and I kind of neglected my home. I only had a wood house at the end of the game, but. I farmed okay and I did everything. I don't see it being that hyper granular. I just think there's more differences in the cards which can get you jump started on that strategy to do it. Because I think it's kind of the same thing. I, I, I don't think those are that different. I actually might even say that there's more strategies in Caverna because you don't cap off at a certain point with different animal types. Well, that's a fair point. I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah, it's just that I think a lot of the Caverna games I've felt have felt very samey because of People rushing for the overhang tile or deciding to do ruby mining. And and maybe this is just still very new, so it felt really different and it seemed like there was more ways to go out there. I'd be interested to see upon repeat plays how that plays out. Right. And I, I'm, I'm not arguing that there's not different strategies in Agricola. It's, I, I think it's a phenomenal level two and managing the cards is incredibly interesting. I just don't think it's like drastically different. And maybe it is one of those things where it's just because you're forced into a different strategy because of the cards that you have, you have to play differently versus I would say most of us at the Governor table that are experienced have the same way of playing almost every single time or sure try to. I'm almost always the adventure guy. Right. I never adventure. I never adventure. I never do that. I usually I usually go for peace, the peaceman and I usually go for overhang and then I try to get a big family. But Kirk always loves to adventure. Tyler usually does the overhang thing as me, too. It's just I rarely ever go mining. You, you have to make a conscious effort to do the different strategies or something versus an Agricola where you're kind of painted into that corner to start. Yeah, that's fair. I'll give you that. Totally. All right. Well, we could probably talk for another 45 minutes, but we're getting long. Why don't we do our final thoughts on Agricola, starting with you, Mark? OK. I was really interested to play this one just to mentally resolve the conflict on the I, I knew Caverna well. I know that I love Caverna, yet I hear over and over and over again about what a masterpiece Agricola is and that it's still, even with Caverna in the world, stands on its own two legs and is a valid experience and is a unique experience in those. So I was very interested to give both of those, a, give it a try actually by itself to categorize it in my own brain and make my own decisions on that one rather than being told by somebody what I should think. I had played it a, several times on iOS in the past and enjoyed the experience, but you know, there's no substitution for playing against real people. I loved it. I really had a good time. It felt more different from Caverna than I thought it was going to. Outside of some of just the blocking and tackling on how you plant fields and so forth, the way you approach the game and what you have to do felt extremely different to me. 
And based on those things, I would personally rank it at the same level as Caverna. Like I have Caverna as a nine on board game geek. I would put Agricola in the same bin and I would happily play either one of them and give them each their own little uh, airspace to live in. How about you, Jake? I think you summarized my feelings incredibly well. So I'm going to kind of go a little different and compare them more than you did in your example. Because I agree. I love Agricola. I think it was more different than I was expecting. And I don't know why this is constantly viewed as the you're either going to like one or the other. Yeah. Disagree completely with that sentiment. Right. I still don't know if I'd advise someone to go out and buy both. Like if you own Caverna and love it, I don't think you should go run out and buy Agricola. But I don't think if I own Caverna in the game group and you have Agricola and everybody says in the game group, we like Caverna more, you should burn your copy of Agricola. I don't think that at all. No, not at all. And in a perfect world where I had a bunch of money and had a bunch of space for games, I would happily have a copy of Agricola on my shelf. I think I'm going to put it on my want in trade thing, and hopefully I can get somebody to take some other game off me and give me their copy of Agricola that they don't want anymore. There's a few billion copies out there, so that ought not to be tough. Yes. That being said, here's kind of how I summarize both ones. As of now, I prefer Caverna, but that's coming from an incredibly biased standpoint of that game meant a lot to me growing up in the kind of gaming world. And it also means a lot to me playing it every year with my family and friends at Clopcon. I don't think that it's better than Agricola, though, nor do I think Agricola is better than Caverna. I'd probably give them both. I have Caverna as an eight in Boardcape Geek, and I gave Agricola an eight as well. If I were to buy one starting now, I don't know which one it'd be. That'd be a really hard decision. It'd probably go down to the dollars and how much how expensive it's going to be to pimp it out and everything. But if I were to get a cell phone app of either of the games, I would 100% get a cell phone app of Agricola versus Caverna. Well, if only that existed. Oh, wait, it does. Oh, oh wait. It, <laughs> it just it seems like one of those ones that'd be really fun to really dive into and play over and over again and really try to figure out the efficiencies. Yeah, it's extremely well done, too. I actually would highly recommend the iOS app for Agricola. It's 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 excellent. I have enjoyed playing it quite a bit. Totally. So that's my thoughts on it. I'm always happy to play it. And it's actually surprising. I thought I would have been able to choose a side here, which is funny because I've played Caverna so much. You'd think that, oh, yeah, dummy, of course you're going to like that one more. Agricola has some pretty interesting things going on in it. It'll be interesting to see kind of down the line if we play this game more where we'll land on that debate. And I, I would say actually too, everybody at the table gave it pretty solid, strong remarks. You know, there was some maybe I'd play Caverna more, maybe I'd play, but everybody enjoyed it. Right. If my perfect world would be if they were to have a baby, if I could choose certain <laughs> <Yeah>. aspects <laughs> of Caverna and choose certain aspects of Agricola. Oh, it'd be so good if we could have the tile play and interesting. Um, I, I thought it was better actions on the action board. I'd love that. But if we were to have the tightness of both action boards and the brutality in feeding your family of Caverna, I mean, of Agricola, pardon me, and then also have the cards from Agricola, but back them off a little bit. So they're a little bit less game changingly good and do something like that. I would just love it. I think it'd be the perfect game for me. Uve, get on it. And while you're at it, put the setting on like one of the moons of Jupiter. Please. Yeah. Don't, don't make it farming in Europe, <laughs> please. But that being said, Mark, our good friend Kirk has the expansion to Caverna. We'll have to give that a try. The Forgotten Folk, I believe, is the name of it, where there's a bunch of different races you can be now. You're not just dwarves. Absolutely. And <laughs> expansions to a Rosenberg game. On the on-deck circle last night was Feast for Odin to the Norwegians, and that's coming up hot and heavy too soon. Sounds great. All right. So Mogul Scale. Oh, Mogul Scale. We got a Mogul Scale. Yeah. Yeah. 3C, 4C, kind of that, that rangey. 
I'd go either 3C or 3D. Yeah, maybe a D. The rules were pretty easy. And maybe that's coming from a familiarity with Caverna. The strategy with understanding the cards and their interaction is more complex. I'd agree. Yeah, I think 3C, 3D. Maybe. So we, we gave Caverna a 3D, and I think that's probably where it'd be too. 3D. Yep, yep, yep. Perfect. I, I'd go with that. Well, this was a long episode. Hopefully uh, people aren't mad at us. I hope everybody enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed making it. I, I had to say, Jake, this was one of the more fun episodes we've done so far. I don't I like it because one. now we're going to have to freaking start choosing games for the podcast, and I want to do that. I just want to play <laughs> games so I can talk about them. <laughs> That was our thoughts on uh, both Feudum and Agricola, and hope you have as much fun as we do, and we will be sure and catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.